welcome to Avon Stories. I'm Sarah Connolly. I started this project as an excuse to explore Bristol in new ways, and one of those I'm really interested in is sound, so I'm very happy that this episode is a sound walk with Dan Pope. Dan's life is full of sounds. He's an acoustic consultant and chair of the Southwest branch of the Institute of Acoustics. He's been in a band, Gusset, for years. He makes sound art from time to time, and he runs sound walks as well. We walked down the River Avon on the St Philip's Greenway along to the closed Avon path, listening to what we could find. And on the way, Dan told me about what sound walks are and how soundscapes can be approached from art, planning, political, historical and many more angles. He also told me about his work, what cities can do to make better sound environments and a lot more. There are some resources that he mentioned to help people explore sounds themselves and I've got links to those and a bit more on my site, avonstories.com. I hope you enjoy coming on this walk with us. So I'm Dan Pope, I'm an acoustic consultant. I spend my day thinking about sound and acoustics and in this case sound walking. So I'm here to talk to you about sound walking and going out into the environment and listening to what's going on there and trying to enjoy it. Some people view it as meditative. I view it as part of my job. Wow. (laughs) So what is a sound walk? What are we about to do? Sound walks started probably in the 60s or 70s when there was a Canadian composer called R. Murray Schaefer who started the World Listening Project and he was very into uh, acoustic ecology and the sound of the environment and the sound of wildlife and everything else going on. And he used to do sound walks around where he was teaching in Canada and it's, it's kind of grown from there. It's, it's a bit of a niche pastime, but I suppose you could trace it back to the flanners of the uh, Victorian <laughs> era, of just people who uh, want to go out and experience their environment in a different way. So it kind of ties to psychogeography, because I come to psychogeography yeah. from an art point of view, but this is doing psychogeography from a sound point of view. Yes. So what are we going to do? We're going to have a wander around the river here, which you can hear in the background. We're going to listen to some dogs barking and the dogs at cat's home. We're going to basically experience the environment in different ways. And I can talk to you about different ways of listening, ways to help you focus in on things a bit more and stuff like that. That's really exciting. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's put a little bit of that in for a few seconds. So what can we hear right here? We're standing outside the cats and dogs home. We're standing outside the cats and dogs home. We can hear the river. We can hear lots of birds. Don't ask me to identify birds. That's an ecologist's job. <laughs> <laughs> I have people in the office I ask about that when I need to. There's a few different exercises you can do when you start doing this to try and get yourself into the mindset of listening to things carefully. One of those I quite like to do is to stop and listen in a fairly uh, not too busy environment like this and see how many different sounds you can pick out so right now there's several different birds there's several different dogs there's the water flowing from the river to our side there which is I don't know what 10 meters away a jog has just gone over the bridge above us I don't know if you heard that as he wandered past another nice exercise is to uh, pick out a moving source which is good if we get a cyclist come past or something on the track here and see how far you can follow that particular sound for. So if a cyclist goes past, we'll see if we can listen for how long it is until the sound from that has disappeared behind everything else. Works the same with runners. When I've run sound walks before, Queen Square is a good spot for it because it's got gravel paths, so you can just pick one person and see how far you can follow their footsteps. Yeah. I noticed you didn't mention traffic noise. I didn't mention traffic noise. It's quite boring, but it is there. Yeah, it's behind us. It's so common, it's very easy to not bother listing it. But yeah, yeah. normally if I'm doing a noise survey, it's part of my job. It's always the first thing on the list. It's always the first thing you hear. But yeah, this is actually uh, quite fairly well isolated. And I'm hoping as we get along the path, we might get further from it. We'll see. I have a bad habit of sitting on Twitter and writing the things that I can hear. Yeah. That's not a bad habit, and that's I, a no, really no. Well, healthy the, habit. The bad habit, though, is that I always forget a rumble of traffic. Here I am going, oh, I can hear this flag flapping and seagulls and a bit of building work and people having conversations and traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's just being urban that traffic's always there. Maybe countryside people feel like that's about birdsong. They might do. Yeah, ask some. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's walk down the greenway. Hey, 
Have you got magic ears? <laughs> That's no, a no. Question. I've, I've always protected my hearing. So when I was young student used to go out to gigs all the time uh, I used to come home and have tinnitus every night and quite quickly realised I should be protecting my hearing so I, I barely go anywhere noisy without carrying earplugs these days Right. So it's very important, protect your hearing kids <laughs> so do you wear earplugs in life? I, I always wear earplugs when I go out to gigs Yeah. if I get there and I find it's not a particularly noisy gig and you can have a normal conversation over it then it's probably not necessary but if you need to raise your voice to talk it's too loud right I've lost that now, even though I can still see his feet, I can't hear the actual footsteps anymore. But there's quite a lot more traffic noise from the other side of the river now. Yeah. How does it work in terms of that relationship between sound and hearing? Because I think sometimes there's things that I expect to hear because I can see them. Yep. Or the other way around, you know. They are very, very closely linked. For example, with the runner there, we were following his footsteps and listening to him. And right now, I can still see his feet further ahead of us. If I'm watching that, I have to really concentrate on whether I can really hear it or if I'm just expecting to or thinking I can just because I can still see his feet hitting the floor. Something some people like to do on these sorts of walks is do blindfold stuff or things with your eyes closed just to help you concentrate. I did a a sound walk with someone visiting Bristol around Millennium Square where they put everyone in pairs, blindfolded one of them and someone just stood behind them and held their shoulders and guided them round a bit and then they swapped over and did it the other way and my, my work colleague was walked into a bollard by the person behind him not spotting it so that, that was all good amusing stuff <laughs> they're walking past some air vents that aren't working no they're not on at the moment yeah there'd normally be extract fans running there just droning away how did you become an acoustician? I left school knowing I was interested in music and sound and physics and, and maths and things. And I, I thought, oh, maybe I'll end up working in a recording studio or something like that. And I decided to study audio technology at Salford. I did my uh, degree there. I did a year out in industry as, as an acoustic consultant. I ended up working as a consultant afterwards. And I think there's quite a lot of people working in consultancy who go into it thinking I'll do something cool in a recording studio and then you find (laughs) actually I'm massively overqualified now and I should have started making tea and you become an acoustic (laughs) consultant what are the things that you do in your job then I work on a lot of planning applications and environmental acoustics stuff so if someone wants to build new houses or a new road or whatever type of development I'll advise on how to do that so that the houses are somewhere that's suitably quiet where people aren't going to be disturbed right. uh, where new sources coming to an area aren't going to disturb the people who live there already or in some cases even wildlife or oh. done a couple of jobs where for example fishing activity dredging environment agency were concerned it was going to be disturbing wading birds in the area so we had to go and do a sound study of that and work out whether it was going to happen at the times of day when the birds are there and, and you know whether they'd be disturbed by it or not that's fascinating. That sounds like really uh, such a mix of... It is a real things. mix. That's what I've always enjoyed about the job is how different it is day to day, how many different things I get to do. That's wow. why I quite enjoy going into schools to do the STEM talks and, and talk about what you can do in an engineering career because it is so varied. It keeps you interested and you're always learning something new. Yeah. And I guess it's also very political at the moment. Like, you know, Definitely. we're in Bristol and we're having this issue of live music venues shutting down because yep. people move next door to them. And I guess you're trying to stop that happening in the first place? Yeah, I haven't worked on any of those directly. I know the consultants who did on both sides. Interesting area, and the new agent of change law that's coming in should hopefully deal with that. So right. it should stop the issue of people moving to an area where there's an existing live music venue and saying, that bothers me, stop it. Yeah. And venues getting shut down. We've heard about it in Bristol with the club in St Paul's. Yeah. And the Thecla's under threat. Thecla's under threat. The fleece was under threat yeah. so a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I know that the graving yard, the last dry dock, for example, yeah. no one working at it at the moment, but yeah. they've got the issue of the flats being built around it that might stop it actually being a graving yard. And then if the dry dock goes, half the big boats on the harbour go. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good. The agent of change principle 
should allow for a you were there first, therefore yeah. you have the right to do this. Yeah. And new people moving in should be aware of that. And the developers who build those new flats are the people responsible for the sound insulation. Right. So if a new resident moving in complains and says, this noise is bothering me, the person making the noise doesn't have to stop. The person who built the house has to insulate it in very general terms. Yeah. Wow. So we're standing under a bridge. We are. Why does it sound like this? Oh, we've got a bit of Revo going on, haven't we? There was a sound walk that went on with one of my university lecturers, Trevor Cox, did in Bristol a couple of years ago. He was from Bristol originally, so he came down and he planned this little route around from this walk from the watershed. And it was planned to happen on a normal Saturday. And when he actually came down to do the walk and I joined it, it turned out to be the half marathon that hadn't <laughs> been planned in. So all of the streets were shut off. No traffic noise, lovely. However, the route had to cross the marathon route twice. So you had that little um, strange system where the half marathon runs you get split into two roads and then one gets closed off and all the directions yeah. shuffle into the middle and then the middle arrow turns and the runners go the other way and you shuffle across the rest of the road. So it took a lot longer than was planned because of that. But what's really apparent doing a walk like that on a day when there's not traffic around is how keenly aware you are of the reverb in the city of all of these hard, flat surfaces that the sound bounces off of, which with the drone of traffic noise you don't see there. You put a person there with a microphone giving race commentary and people sit around listening to it and you're suddenly aware there's this horrible cacophonous echoing reverb going on that you, you just ignore day to day. Hi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> We got one of the dogs from the dog's home. Oh, hello. <laughs> got a licked microphone. <laughs> but that's an amazing sound too, isn't it? It is. Here. Hear that jangle of the collar there. Yeah. And the other thing acousticians love doing in spaces like this is clapping and listening to it because we love assessing what the reverb's oh, like. Oh, cool. So, and that's quite dead, actually. So I'm going to move around and see if I can find... There we go, that's better. So you get a little bit of flutter echo going side to side. It's quite a rough wall, not a very flat one. What so. happens if we go closer to the wall? Because that was in the middle. You found the big reverb spot in the middle. Now we're standing now, by a, um, I don't even know what, a prison, a prison, prison cell. It's, it's a gate of It's a gate. Sort. Gate under the bridge. What happens so, here? Well, you might get a little bit of reverb within that space in there. Not a lot else. There's a small cabin of space in there. You, you can probably... Can you, make, um, an, make an effort to judge on the size of it from the sound of it. Which, oh, really? Which your mind is very good at doing instinctively without you realising it's doing it. But, you know, if, if you played someone some recordings of clapping in different size spaces, they'd be able to put them in order and say, that's the smallest, that's the largest, um, assuming they're sort of similar stone structures. Wow. There's a lot of processing goes on in your brain of working out where you are from the audio clues that you're not even aware you're doing consciously. Wow. Yeah, I went for a walk with um, a sound artist, Ellen Southern, and we were yeah. in a small space, and she was finding the wolf note place, oh, where, yes, the, yeah. where the whole place just like, and you're just like, this is insane, this is like magic. Yeah. It sounds just like a normal place, normal place, normal place, and suddenly it just fills up with this mad <laughs> reverberation, and it's like, wow, that's, that's like magic. Ellen's very good at that, though. It's, yeah, she's made that her thing, the site-specific singing, as she calls it. She can really make you so keenly aware of the acoustics of a space just by walking around singing in it and it's, it's beautiful to listen to wow. so we're obviously on a walk that is a sound walk but you said you designed them as well and you run them what does that mean? <laughs> well, today's quite free flow because I, I don't know this area particularly well. But normally when I've organised sound walks, I will scope it out a few times first and I'll walk it at different times of day or do a few different versions of it and work out what can be done in a reasonable time scale, you know, to get back to the same starting position. Yeah. I try to make sure that I have an, an interesting series of things along the way to listen to. Oh, can I just stand yeah, down here? Yeah, tape in the trees there. if that will come out on my recorder but we're looking at little bits of tape and plastic it's just been caught in the tree and in the barbed wire there hasn't it a little bit of different noise it sounds different to the noise of the leaves in the trees different types of trees give you different types of sounds so you know a normal deciduous tree you get the sound of the leaves slapping together 
imitating with a piece of paper in my hand there. But it's almost like a clapping sound of yeah. all the individual leaves, whereas uh, an evergreen tree, something with needles on it, the sound you get from that in the wind is actually a whistling of the wind around the needles, the same way as when you put a piece of grass between your hands and blow. And there, in this instance, where we have some plastic packaging tape stuck in some tree, and there's some razor wire there. We're just getting that fluttering noise of the plastic, which is bringing back to mind to me the, the smashed up cassette tapes you'd find in the street in the 80s, which is a lesser seen sight these days. <laughs> yeah, things that you don't see anymore. <laughs> but it's interesting because I guess in the summer when the leaves are out, we wouldn't hear that because it would Probably be not. hidden underneath the canopy. Yeah. So what we were saying before... We, we were talking, weren't we? What were we talking about? This must be something that happens all the time on sandwalks, getting distracted oh, by yes, sounds. Yeah. So, yeah, when I'm planning a sandwalk, I'll, I'll plan particular things I want to go to and hopefully they'll be there or they'll, they'll be happening <laughs> at the time you go there. You can never rely on that, but in an urban area, you can count on there being some people around in that area and some traffic in that area. Yeah. But there's always something happens that you don't expect and that gives you a reason to stop and listen for a bit. And yeah, I would always plan in stopping points to do particular things and maybe have some activities to do at each one other people run sandwalks where they're much more interactive they want to cause the environment to react to them right so there's people who do sandwalks carrying little speaker boxes playing music there's a group nearby who do sandwalks where they give each person a little speaker box playing a different section of a piece of music that when they're all together form a larger piece of music but those people all go wandering off around different areas, pointing at different things, and it's fun to be carrying one of those and, and watch people's reaction because yeah. just, just the reactions of people is where suddenly there's a dozen people carrying the wooden cubes of speakers <laughs> in them, making strange little ambient noises around a city centre. They're not a normal sight. It's fun to take part in. I recommend trying it. And then what other kind of soundwalks are there? Well, yeah, some people do more playful ones where there might be things to do along the way there's a lot of the people do entirely silent ones where you just have a person at the front with an umbrella or whatever and they'll just walk and everyone follows silently and nothing else happens you just listen all the way i've seen ones done where people have little um, contact microphones so microphones that only pick up the vibrations of things they're in contact with on spikes so you go and you stick them in the ground and you'll listen to whatever's going on there with a pair of headphones and then you'll move on and do another one things you can do with radio and stuff like that as you get into the more creative and artistic side of it the possibilities are endless yeah it sounds like a really weird interesting mix of that juncture between art and politics and environmentalism and engineering and yeah it's definitely a field which has interest from many many different sides so there's probably a very small number of people who specialize just in doing that particular niche thing but there's people who are interested in it from the point of view of city planning or field recording or broadcast or foley artists for film or cultural studies people who go out and just record the sounds of particular cultural environments where you might go to a particular city somewhere else just to record the sounds of how that is different to other places oh, I, wow. I know people who've done cultural studies of areas of japan i've seen talks by people who've done cultural studies in portugal where they've studied the traditional songs of workers out in the street or the women sat sewing in front of houses and things and those are sort of dying sounds you you're collecting them from a i guess from an ethnographic yeah. uh, point of view of, of trying to record those bits of audio history before we disappear the same way people like Alan Lomax did in the southern states of the US in the 60s or whenever, whenever it was when he's travelling around trying to record all his sounds before they disappeared Wow, I walked down here with a different artist and he was uh, saying that the sounds that would have been around here in Victorian times yeah. when it was still being used as a shipping yeah. centre versus the sounds that you hear now versus we're in an area that's earmarked to have massive developments and yeah. move from very kind of working class small industries into luxury flats and so yeah. this is going to change the towns that we would hear on a weekday would be definitely would change it, as yeah. well and now it's interesting to me because i can see the romanticism in recording you know portuguese women's sewing songs for yeah. example and i think anyone could see romanticism in that and i being a little bit of a bleeding heart who likes industrial stuff i can see a romanticism in i don't know this recycling plant isn't going to be here anymore so people won't hear that sound but that's not something that's 
necessarily a lot of people would feel bad about losing. No, it's not a thing that many people would notice missing. If you take as an example, though, some of the much more industrial heritage of the Midlands in the north, where there were huge steel drop hammers and things clanking through the night to, you know, around Sheffield and mm. Birmingham, and all that soundscape that people were living in led to the evolution of heavy metal so Def Leppard in Sheffield, Black Sabbath in Birmingham and so on so you, you know all that early British heavy metal scene came out of the industrial Midlands and the North and then in the 80s also that same soundscape led to the rise of industrial music the Cabaret Voltaire and, and all, all those other bands that came out of those areas are mostly around Sheffield if you look at the cabs in particular coming out of Sheffield uh, Chris Watson was a member of that in the early days and he's now gone on to be probably the most prominent field recordist in the country if not in the world you know all of those classic BBC documentaries that you see of Attenborough wandering around with different animals in, in whatever strange region or blue planet or whatever then there's a very good chance he's on the credit as the person who went there and recorded those wildlife sounds wow. I saw a talk by him in Birmingham a few months ago where he was talking about ways he went about recording particular sounds and he, he wanted to get the sounds of jaguars eating some particular kill and it's very difficult to get close to them without spooking them. So they decided that the best way to do it was to get a carcass of an antelope that had recently died, put the microphones inside it, and leave it out and wait for the animals to find <laughs> it. Oh, <goodness. laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> but they, they got it. You but, don't end up with the sounds of the antelope digesting inside the jaguar. <laughs> 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 the sounds of putrefaction very <laughs> <varies> slowly. <laughs> find it wow it's amazing we're standing here by the river again and i think one of the things that's surprising me that i've literally only just realized how often i walk by the river i you know used to commute walk by the river all the time and how how rarely i hear it yeah it's not loud right here right now and the river's 10-15 meters from us and then maybe i don't know 100 meters away there's quite a major a road so actually being able to pick out the sound of the river against that is quite difficult and on a recording i doubt people are going to be able to hear that they may but there's there's a few particular points where we've passed little trickling outlets running into it or the small weirs where there's a large rock or an old jetty or something and you can hear the water flowing over that much more easily than you can in the kind of free flowing state it is right now it might be a bit easier when the wind's a bit lower as well yeah yeah, because I can hear it in certain places, like there are certain places, certain footbridges, yeah. where it's going over a very rough patch underneath it, and at a certain time of day you can hear it rushing. Is it a skill to be able to pick up that? Is that something that you can learn to, to train yourself to pick out I guess it is, noises? yeah. You, you do learn to do it more, and it's one of the reasons you do those focusing exercises when you're, you're doing the walks, is just getting into the mindset of doing it. And I do it quite a lot as part of my job, because I spend a lot of my time taking noise measurements and making audio recordings and you find yourself listening out for those things something you probably find when you do these podcasts and you go back and edit them is you listen back to it and you realize there's stuff in the background you didn't notice when you were there because yeah. you were too busy concentrating on what was being said yeah to notice someone coming running past or a, an ambulance going by or whatever else it was yeah good timing there <laughs> yeah, and you had your back to the person running past because I ran past that perfectly so it wasn't even planned it wasn't planned no. no I mean the thing about the ambulances and stuff is I don't even hear them anymore I guess I grew up in cities so I yeah. don't notice them there's a lot of sounds we just become so acclimatised to you don't notice anymore in the same way if you go and stay in a bed and breakfast in some rural part of Gower Coast somewhere and you get woken up by birds or farm animals or whatever else in the morning and you know it's so dark you think this isn't right I'm not comfortable with this yeah the person who lives there coming into a city is shocked by the amount of noise going yeah. on and all those distractions of traffic and sirens and door slams and people talking and everything else you very much get used to particular sounds in the late 90s I was living in Manchester and you can hear the water there now The tide's going out, and obviously as the tide goes out, the water level is going to be dropping. We're looking at bits of rocks that are kind of forming sounds as the water flows around it. 
that must change all throughout that the day. That will be changing throughout the day. So that's going to emerge and there'll be a point where that's at its noisiest and as the river goes back up again, then that's going to disappear again. But, you know, another rock might appear over there that we can't see right now. Or there might yes. be one sticking up so high over there by yonder swan <laughs> that, you know, it's sticking up so high that it doesn't seem to causing any of that sloshing noise around it. And then as the level rises, it might start doing so again. Going back to my previous anecdote, I was living in Manchester in the 90s when I was studying at Salford. I moved to Timperley, home of Frank Slidebottom, <laughs> when, I, when the second run, runway was being built at Manchester Airport and these massive stone trains came through every night. I was uh, as far away from the train line as we are from the river here. And these huge trains full of aggregate came through about three o'clock every morning, delivering all this stone to the airport development. Our first night in the flat, we hadn't really unpacked properly there was just cupboards full of stuff had just been thrown in there was a massive pile of coat hangers in one of them and it just collapsed as the train went past and stuff <laughs> fell over it shook the, the building so much and within a couple of weeks I stopped waking up at that time I just got used to it and I knew that big rumbling sound happens at three o'clock in the morning don't bother waking up for it it's always there and then when I moved out of there after a year first couple of days I woke up at that time in the morning with my mind saying where's the big rumbling sound something's wrong <laughs> <laughs> oh it's fascinating we're looking at a bunch of new developments as well on the other side we're on the side of the a road we're looking at paintworks and there's just a few paintworks flats where they've gone up quite high yeah they have haven't they obviously they're going to have to have taken into account the sound of the road when they're building them there yep well when you're building a residential development you have to go and take some measurements at that location and prove that it's going to be suitable to live in you're not going to build something immediately next to the m4 unless you can prove that uh, people aren't going to be disturbed by it and you can see that in the new developments currently going on around lid green and to the north of bristol going back pre-2012 we had a system in place called the planning policy guidance where there was various different notes for different disciplines where you had to do this in terms of ecology and this in terms of whatever and PPG24 told you what you had to do in terms of noise it told you to go and measure the noise where you were building residential properties for at least 24 hours that got thrown out with the National Planning Policy Guidance published in 2012 part of the Tory love of cutting red tape and there was a bit of a free-fall for a few years but it still referred to the various other bits of guidance that were available in terms of World Health Organization guidance on what were suitable levels for sleep disturbance and so right. on. So things got a lot more woolly. But leading up to that, there was a process going on probably around 2007-8 where all of the planning policy guidance were being updated into planning policy statements and the noise one never got published, mainly because of controversy that dragged out for so long. But most of that controversy focused around one sentence. And that sentence was that you should take account of what the sound is and whether it should also have a positive impact on the area. So whether there could be positive use of sound in terms of adding sound sources oh, wow. that drowned others. Oh, That was so controversial. <laughs> wow. There were days and days of conferences talking about it. Developers worried that every new housing development they were going to build was going to have to have a water feature in the middle of it. <laughs> it got dragged out to the point it never happened because of that. <laughs> but I went to a one-day event in London at Reba, Royal Institute of British Architects, and the then president, Sonan Passand, of Anand Passand Architects in Ireland, chaired a day of talks about soundscape and actually designing soundscapes and making sure they were appropriate for where they are and having nice sounds rather than nasty sounds there. He's one of the few architects I've met who really properly understands acoustics. Not to dismiss every other artist, but there's plenty <laughs> who understand the physics of it. But he seemed to really grasp the difference it makes in terms of quality of a place. Whereas there's a tendency among architects to think visually first yeah. and then sound comes later. Yeah. I stayed in a hotel which had some very fancy siding on it which was fine in the daytime but at night it started to rain and it sounded like gunfire yeah. like it wasn't what you wanted in the hotel it was really scary i woke up the halfway in a nightmare <laughs> we just stopped because there's some kind of watery sound down there right there is 
And there's the sound of some buddleia in front of us, and we got some a reed bed that I reckon if the wind was up, we'd be able to hear the yep. reeds more. But you're saying the sound of like a water feature, like building a water feature in a housing estate. The idea of good sounds and bad sounds, is that scientific or is it just... It's, it sort of is, but it's difficult to quantify. There are people who have made attempts at trying to measure it. Yang Kang in Sheffield being one of those where they tried to start assessing quality of sound. But you're getting more and more into psychology rather than physics. Yeah. So, you know, psychology is equal to science, but it's one that's measured more by doing lots of surveys and taking statistical analysis of people's reactions to it rather than taking audio measurements and right. measuring how much of this frequency is there a live bang is there an onset time of this is there a peak above whatever and having all these different thresholds but yeah acoustics can very easily sit on that border between psychology and physics there's some nice gray areas in there I guess there's also a tradition like everyone says birdsong's lovely right so you hear birdsong and even yeah. if it's that super loud birdsong that's woken you up at three in the morning yeah. you can't complain about it but then you have the church bell controversies like in North yeah. Somerset where people moved to a village and got the church bells not allowed to be rung between certain times because it was too loud yeah when, that's and, and, every happened. Time, and every time it's reported people are like what are you saying church bells are wonderful but if it was I don't know the same sound coming from a building site would it have the same evocations or yeah, I don't know, but with the church bell example specifically, and that has happened where church bells have been shut down, I think the example that was in the news in Somerset was chiming on the hour, mm. uh, and the hours it chimed was curtailed. I, I would expect someone moving into the area to acknowledge that and know that, that was part of that local soundscape that people expected to hear, and even though the reasons for it might be historical in, in terms of it helped people working in the fields till yeah. the time of day back when it was a largely agricultural area, that's still part of the history of the area and it, it seems romantic to want to retain that but I like it and I don't like seeing sounds like that They're cut out of an area when they seem like they'd be of offence to no one or they might be benefiting more people by giving them a sense of local identity yeah. than the one person who's moved into the area and is disturbing them initially when in all likelihood they'd get accustomed to it quite quickly Yeah. but then there's the new agent of change law that we discussed earlier with uh, music venues will equally apply to church bells or, right. or whatever else so hopefully that will get sorted soon in terms of that little loophole that's uh, caused so much press yeah you also said that birds never disturb anyone but I, I'm sure no, you'll well, find no. plenty Sarca- of people sarcastically who... <laughs> yeah. yeah you can't go there's a beautiful little wren that just popped over there and was like chirping super loudly and it's like yeah I think that's there's uh... plenty of people who don't like gulls as well yeah well gulls are a really interesting one because to me gulls are a sound of Bristol I don't think I've ever been aware of city gulls in any of the other cities I've lived in but I've never lived in a kind of port or river city like I, that I've lived in Bristol since the 70s and gulls weren't always here in the numbers they oh, are really? now so their numbers have been growing so I still associate the sound of gulls and I like hearing it even in, in city areas but I associate that sound with childhood holidays in Dorset and yeah. sitting in you know, a chalet in West Bay, or Broadchurch, <laughs> as people will know it, uh, <laughs> hearing the sound of girls tapping around on the roof and, and yakking each other, you know, mine, 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 <laughs> in, in the Finding Nemo sense. Yeah, I like that sound. I know plenty of other people who quite happily take their rifle out. Yeah. <laughs> so you talked about creating soundscapes and people wanting to do that how do you do that there's different tools you can use Sheffield again is a really great example of it because the university there works with soundscape quite a lot they've designed quite a few different areas around the city where you can take a walk that goes through various park areas that have different water features in them and those water features have been designed to fit with the area they're in so if you're in a very quiet idyllic park area then it's a very quiet trickling fountain but when you come out of the main train station you're confronted by a huge roaring waterfall which also acts as a noise barrier so the thing is a physical noise barrier to the traffic noise and then it happens to have this water pouring over it as well to add additional masking noise so it works very nicely to stop you coming out of the train station just going oh i'm on an a road (laughs) yeah all bamboo I'm guessing someone's planted it badly. It's not a native plant. And it was just rustling and now it stopped.
Okay, it's not going to perform. This is the problem with sound walks, where your yes. where your sounds yeah. don't perform on cue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does happen. <laughs> you hear this amazing sound, you rush up to it, and the sound's gone. The first sound walk I ran was around the city centre, starting in Queen Square with the listening to people's footsteps. I'd planned it out with a, another consultant I know, and we'd planned this walk, and then we'd picked out Nelson Street. It's a particularly nasty area. It was yeah. this horrible, grey, noisy slab of road with massive double-decker buses uh, piling down it, to, and not a lot else going on. No one would choose to walk that way because it was so unattractive. So we planned this route out, we drew it on a map, we gathered everyone together, and the week before we did the wall was the first time Upfest yep. we repainted the entire street. Yep. And it, it, became, <laughs> it became this hub of, of bright, vibrant graffiti, little pop-up shops opening, and we did the walk, and it was this, this beautiful, vibrant place full of people and activity which is great it, it made it very nice to listen to but it was so so different to what we'd planned it to be it's, it's our, it was going to be our example of this is a horrible soundscape you yeah. would never want to walk here it's amazing what a lick of paint can do in that sense yeah. and so even something as simple as a visual change in terms of some paint can make a difference to the the soundscape because people start using it differently yeah. and that changes what it sounds like yeah I have a crush on underbridge spaces like this. Was, was that a swing previously? Yeah. That would have been terrifying. <laughs> yeah, we're standing under the St Philip's Causeway, which is a double set of metal bridges over the Avon. And it's um, not as loud as I thought it would be. No, it's not, is it? I don't think there's a huge amount of traffic going past, but uh, it's a nice, nice little underbridge space. But then I, I grew up in Ashton underneath the Cumberland Basin. Yes. And all of those spaces were where I went and rode my bike around as a kid. And, set fire to things and, and whatever else you do as a, as a child <laughs> in that sort of area uh, so yeah I share the uh, intrigue by these little underbridge spaces so we're about to leave the official path and go on the um, technically closed path <laughs> there's, a, there's a gate so it's fine there's a gate it's not locked it's not a big fence it just says us don't do it but yes the closed Avon path it's it very well trod Oh yeah, exactly. The only problem is, is that it falls into the river. It's a very satisfying gate. We've kind of lost the traffic noise here, haven't we? We have, finally. There's some hum though, some industrial hum. The industrial hum from the St Philip's Park, but we're kind of away from the road for the first time. We're coming out here and it's kind of, I'd say, we're just beginning to have spring. Yeah. I'm interested in how this sort of stuff must change over the year. It does change over the year. Not really in terms of noise level. As an acoustician doing noise surveys, I don't tend to worry too much about time right. of the year, as long as the weather conditions are okay. Okay. But in terms of the actual ecological sounds you'll pick out, then yes, they'll be changing greatly and there'll be different species at different times of year. There's lots of burrowing creatures coming out of hibernation and insects. I saw the first bee of the year in my garden last week. That was exciting. There'll be plenty of small mammals that have just come out of hibernation now. All things I'm not a great expert on. <laughs> so that's interesting. So if you have like a stand of trees, for example, mm. does that not change their noise the, baffling? The sound from the, the trees themselves will change according to whether they have foliage or not. Yeah, but it, as a but noise dampener? Trees don't actually provide a huge amount of, of dampening. There's, there's a huge sort of myth around the fact that you can plant lines of trees and they'll form an acoustic screen oh. that doesn't work oh right oh, look at that isn't that disgusting like beautiful <laughs> so you can hear the slight hissing of the boc it's like that yeah they'll have works there doing various gas related works where they'll just suck in air and separate out oxygen from nitrogen to carbon dioxide and bottle them up separately for use in various industrial processes but you can hear the sound there of the, the various uh, industrial machinery involved in separating those out. And they've got some kind of siren, some kind of thing saying, not a siren so much as saying, hey, we're doing some work here. No, it's an alarm of some sort. It's a bit like a reverse alarm sort of sound, hmm. but um, it's obviously static. That's probably warning people not to go in a certain area. Like where we are now. Possibly here, <laughs> yeah. 
This is probably the wildest bit of the Avon in the city. It probably is, isn't it? Although it's got the industrial side, the fact that there's no roads around it, that yeah. we've got the back end of a car park above us, it's probably the kind of most untouched place since this footpath's yeah. been taken out yeah. of commission. When the bank eroded, those trees landslid yeah. down, right? And they're still managing to survive just, even though they get covered yeah, in water. that one's not looking too good. No. Talking about designing in soundscapes, and you're talking about water, for example. We were, and good, we? yeah. good sounds and bad sounds. Yeah. How else can environments be designed to have good soundscapes? There's lots of little things you can do, but the other really big one you see people try and encourage a lot is encouraging wildlife in. That's probably the, the wild sound or the, the, the oh. people want the most. So simply putting in hedgerows and trees that encourage birds and other animals which also ties in brilliantly with the ecologists who will want to be having green lanes to yeah. allow animals to move around and in introducing species into city parks and so on that's the other thing that people do really sort of respond well to so uh, having the sounds of vegetation blowing some people do in specifically design planting to plant things that make a nice noise when the right. wind blows through them there, there are long grasses and reeds or certain shrubs that are known for being a little bit noisy and they're quite nice to have in certain areas. We're going to pass that stand of bamboo again. See if it performs for us <laughs> this time, yeah. It won't perform again. But that's like an invasive species that you've got to be careful of planting yes. on the one hand, that it can go out of control and take over. On the other hand, it sounds really nice. <laughs> <laughs> there must be interesting balances like that. There's, there's lots of interesting balances, but there's also um, planting responsibly. And if you're designing planting anyway, you're not going to plant things that are going to completely run away unmaintained unless yeah. you specifically have an area you want that to happen. And that probably doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Does it ever go terribly wrong? Like, you know, when sometimes architects try and do things and it seems like a really great idea and it's like, you know, the, the classic Le Corbusier streets in the sky. Yeah. Does it ever go wrong when you're trying to build nice sounds in? It probably does. My favourite example of that that comes to mind wasn't designed as a sound-related design originally. So a Beetham Tower in Manchester is designed with a huge windbreak on the top of it for whatever reasons it has to stay there. But it makes this screeching, whistling noise and in strong winds. We notice it more in night when the traffic levels drop. So you get this howling sound all across Manchester city centre from this building in, in the wind which various studies have attempted to reduce but all of the ways of reducing it acoustically would have other knock-on implications that uh, apparently are not feasible mm -hmm. so this, this screeching tower remains and that's why there's a, the twitter account angry beetham so <laughs> a, a tower that's there shouting at people and screaming at the people on dean's gate bash you with my fist because everyone just sees this building as being very angry <laughs> yeah do you find that as an acoustician you said before that sound can be seen as something that's less important than sight oh I, I wouldn't say candy I think it very definitely is seen as that the sight is our primary sense that uh, we are aware of first and it's also the easiest to communicate because we see it printed we we see it as soon as we, we look at something. Maybe in history, with the advent of verbal language, that might have been different sometime in the past, but we're very much a visual culture now. That's our primary design sense, is what something's going to look like. And then sound comes in, and comfort, and temperature, and airflow, and, and all the other things you need to take into account. Smells. Mm. I also like noticing interesting smells when I'm walking around. So you run walks, of course, and other people run walks, but if people want to explore cities or places where they are without an organised walk, how can they do that? That's just something any person can do. They can just decide to go out and make a conscious effort to listen, but you probably find it beneficial to maybe think about that a bit in advance and decide you were going to go and listen for a type of particular thing or go to a particular place you wouldn't normally go to and listen to it go somewhere where it's safe to do so and just close your eyes and listen so yeah. there's different things you can do depending on whether you're on your own or with a couple of friends or whatever but I, there's a couple of apps I use on my phone I've got a titanium recorder which is just a, an audio recording tool 
if you just want to have a recorder to hand wherever you are at any time, put an app on your phone that can record audio, pull your phone out when you hear something interesting, record it, name it, stick it on SoundCloud, whatever you want to do with it. The SoundCloud app's very good for that as well, actually. It's got a built-in recorder. But uh, that's a good way of making a note of interesting things, the same way you would stop and take a photograph. Right. There's also some called Hush City. The Hush City app was developed by a researcher in Berlin who was doing some soundscape studies around the city but wanted to collect in as much data as possible based on um, people's experiences of the place and how they viewed particular areas. So the app, although whenever you do anything on it, it reports it back to them and they can use it in their studies. As long as you're happy with that, then you can carry that around. You can say, I've got to an interesting place here. I'm going to take this recording. It automatically does it for 30 seconds. It gives you a nice hint, so it tells you to turn your phone around 180 degrees and point the microphone at the thing you're recording. <laughs> uh, people often forget, once you've done that, it asks you to take a photo of it. It then puts it on a map with the recording and the photo. Wow. And asks you a whole bunch of questions, which are loosely based on something called the Stockholm Soundscape Study, which was a big academic study a couple of decades ago, which yeah, asks you to rate how pleasant or unpleasant or natural or unnatural a place is in terms of its sounds and that all that data gets fed into that study and it also forces you to think about some of the things you might otherwise forget to think about. Right. So I guess you can go on the Hush City website and see these things? Yes you can, you can go and look at that and you can see other people's notes and photos and hear their recordings. In fact, there's quite a few websites around that allow you to listen to uh, or look at other people's recordings based on you know, a map type interface. Just Google for uh, sort of sound maps generally and wow. you'll find maps that let you go and listen to the sound of a specific location which is uh, always good fun to explore. And then there's a project called Citizen Memory, which takes recordings of a particular place and then asks artists, musicians, sound artists, to reimagine them. Wow! I've done a couple of those where people have gone and taken recordings of religious spaces around the world and myself and my bandmate took you know, some recordings of a temple in Kyoto and uh, then reimagined that and just made a 10-minute on sound work out of those short recordings. We did something similar with the uh, archive Alan Lomax recordings of chain gangs in the US. Wow. There's lots of others they, they do as well. So there's one on the politics of protest and other specific events or types of sounds. They're all very well categorised into the type of sound they are. And then there's a map for that. It lets you explore it. Wow. But yeah, well so, worth looking at. So you could come at the same website from a hundred different ways. So you could come at it from a social historian, you could come at it as an artist, you can come at it as a just randomly interested. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely. And I, one of the things I found when I've spoken about it or when I've presented at conferences and stuff is the number of different fields people come at it from. I spoke at a conference in Portugal back in 2012 called Invisible Places, Sounding Cities. And it really became apparent from the point of view of an engineer going in to talk about what I do that's related to soundscape. It's the number of other people who are interested in soundscape from completely different backgrounds. Yeah. It was a really good opportunity to meet those other people, talk about what they do, why they do it, what we can learn from them, what we can help them with that they might struggle with from yeah. you know, a mathematical point of view or whatever else. Yeah. So when you're out there, like, I don't know, recording a space for work... Are yep. you also able to take that back and bring it into your personal work, or is that ethically unsound? Um, that could be a yes or a no. There's, there's things <laughs> I, I might record which, uh, it, very often, the, those recordings would belong to our client. And right. If I was working on certain things, then then I shouldn't be using that for my own work. But you know, I'm there taking these recordings, and I've got a phone in my pocket. It also has a recorder on it, so you know, <laughs> I might happen to record something while I'm there as well. Yeah. And and I don't see that as. Uh, problem and you know i wouldn't do that in a space that i wouldn't ha otherwise have access to in public areas that's fine if i were working on a defense project somewhere yeah which doesn't happen very often but if i were doing that then i wouldn't be yeah taking those things and using them elsewhere so it's not a simple cut and dry thing it changes on a case-by-case -case basis and yeah you make a judgment on it if people do want to go on sound walks like this one which i've really enjoyed thank you <laughs> how would they find them what's a good way of finding walks 
That's a good question. There's not a great resource for where they all are, but there's a couple of things you can help find them. First of all, Bristol has a walking festival going on all through May, so look out there. Well, there's lots of particular walks. I'm not aware of any sound walks already planned for that. I haven't planned one myself yet, but there'll definitely be interesting walks where you can listen to stuff. There's also an event called World Listening Day, which happens on the 18th of July every year in honour of R. Murray Schaefer's birthday, the founder of uh, acoustic ecology and the inventor of the term soundscapes in general. So on his birthday every year, people are always encouraged to go out and listen to things. That's a great way of finding stuff. So the website for that each year always has a theme for that year and what the events we planned around. So always go and look at that around early July and see what's happening near you. And if people want to find out about you, where do they find you? Oh, no, no, no. OK, so I'm on Twitter as at Dan Gusset. Gusset being taken from the name of the band I'm sort of in. And I've been kind of stuck with that name for a long time now. And I'm also chair of the Southwest branch of the Institute of Acoustics. So if you go to the Institute of Acoustics website and you go to regional branches and you look for Southwest, you'll find all of the talks we have planned in the area. But they can be on any acoustic-related subject. So don't go there expecting to find sound walks happening every month. There's usually an annual one. There's a couple of other interesting things that we do now and again, and we might go and visit interesting spaces, churches, and then put on very dry technical talks about changes to guidance and leg- legislation. So uh, <laughs> that, that won't be of interest to most people. Right. And your band, Gusset? So, yeah, I was in a band called Gusset going back to the late 90s. We're still sporadically active and uh, occasionally do bits of stuff that sits in memory or dark outside or whatever other specific events going on pretty much stopped playing live gigs now the last one I did was the Sanctum thing when that was uh, in Temple Gate a couple of years ago but where can they find it if they want okay. to listen uh, to it go, go to Bandcamp so gusset.bandcamp.com I think it is and you'll, you'll hear some of our sounds the most recent thing on that is fictionalised soundscape for a video game so uh, the two of us did some sound design for uh, Call of Cthulhu The Wasted Land oh my goodness uh, and we just made up all the sounds of various zombie attacks and <laughs> Nazi warfare and everything else that was going on Amazing. now that was good fun to make and there's a SoundCloud account as well, which is also just called Gusset. Oh, no, it might be called Dan Gusset. I can't remember. So I'll put links to all of those on my website, avonstories.com. And so you can go and you can see the links to everything Dan talks about today. And, uh, yeah, it's, I'm going to listen to the city in a different way. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And thank you for the donuts as well. <laughs> Not a euphemism. <laughs> if you go to my site, avonstories.com, You can find the map of our walk and our photos, as well as links to things we discussed and all my other podcasts. The podcast is also on iTunes and SoundCloud as Avon Stories. And if you'd like to follow my day-to-day explorations of the water in Bristol, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Avon underscore stories. Thank you for listening and come back soon.